You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. One of my biggest inspirations in starting this podcast was a stray comment from my first acting teacher, who said, all of the great dramas begin with the family. He was talking about dramatists like Shakespeare and the Greeks and encouraging us to stop thinking of their plays as capital C classics that required this grand performance style. He wanted us to think of them as simple domestic stories that just so happened to involve mythic gods and kings and queens. The key, he told us, to understanding any character, no matter how distant or exotic their story might seem on paper, is to start with their family. Today on the show, we've got something a little bit different, but also pretty special. This is an episode about a family story that offers some insight into the mind of one of our foremost public intellectuals, someone whose work has opened millions of minds, sparked millions of arguments, and sold millions of copies. A few years back, one of our former producers, Jacob Smith, sat down with Malcolm Gladwell, the legendary author of Blink and The Tipping Point, and the host of the podcast Revisionist History, on which Jacob also works as a producer. Malcolm is the sort of person whose legend looms so large in our cultural discourse that it can be easy to assume that his groundbreaking ideas just poured out of him one day, fully formed, into his articles and books. But Jacob has worked with Malcolm for years, and he knew that there was more to the story. So, a few weeks before the release of the third season of Revisionist History, which is now in its sixth season, Jacob sat down with Malcolm and got a peek behind the curtain. After their conversation, Jacob and I put together an audio essay based on the insights Malcolm shared. And when we were finished, it reminded me of this other amazing story that my friend Nick told me once about a dream Nick had that set him off on a quest to discover his purpose and how in the process of pursuing that purpose, he became a mythic figure in another family's history. And you're going to hear all of that on the show today, along with our infamous Wildcard Wednesday theme song, which is something we put together way back in 2018 for a series of bonus episodes that ran between seasons one and two of our show, and which I've decided to leave in this episode, even though it's not airing on a Wednesday. Incidentally, there is another great story behind the creation of the Wildcard Wednesday theme song, which, if you're a member of our Patreon community, you can hear on today's Kindred Spirits exclusive. From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. Today on the show, Malcolm Gladwell and the meaning of life. That's coming up right after the break. So I'm wondering, 
if you were to pitch, do you have anything in your family you think could make for like a, pers- uh, a family ghost story, a personal revisionist oh, story? Well, I do. It's funny because the minute you start thinking, I thought about this one. Uh, I'm sitting with Malcolm Gladwell in his West Village apartment. I've been working with Malcolm since 2013. I began as his personal assistant after being referred by a previous employer who told me, there's a New Yorker staff writer looking for an assistant, but I can't tell you who it is until a few days before the interview. He's a bit controversial. You should apply. Controversial or not, I applied. And a few days before, when I was told who I'd be interviewing with, I reread Malcolm's 2005 book, Blink, a good portion of which concerns itself with the overwhelming power of first impressions and how it doesn't really matter what you do or say in a job interview because the person interviewing you has probably already made up their mind within a few seconds of meeting you. This was not exactly comforting. I got a new shirt for the interview, and I wore my best pair of leather shoes. Malcolm met me at the door of his apartment, the same one we're sitting in today, and he was barefoot and wearing jogging clothes. He asked that I remove my shoes as well. I never found out whether he made up his mind about me within the first few seconds of meeting me, but I remain convinced that he hired me based on my answer to a single question. Can you drive a stick shift? I replied, yes. But the truth was, it would have been more accurate for me to have said, I have driven a stick shift, which I had. I had learned on a rental car in Ireland and during a brief stint valet parking. But Malcolm was convinced. He actually dropped his pen and said, that's very exciting. He was thrilled to finally have an assistant who could drive his Volkswagen Golf in hectic Manhattan traffic. And I only stalled out a couple of times. After a couple of years of me running errands, doing research, and grinding the gears of his golf, Malcolm asked me if I'd like to work on a new project with him, a podcast that was first unnamed, then tentatively named Rewind, and which ultimately became Revisionist History. I had worked at my college radio station, but much like a brief stint valet parking doesn't really count as knowing how to drive a stick shift, sitting in the basement of my college and playing songs off of YouTube doesn't really prepare you to make a podcast with a best-selling author. But again, I decided to say yes, and figure out the rest later. We've just launched our third season of Revisionist History, and I thought it would be fun to sit down with Malcolm and reflect on his particular style of crafting a podcast. But first, I asked him if he had any family stories of his own. So here's the family legend. Right after my parents get married, they are... uh... Malcolm's dad was a professor at the University of the West Indies in Kingston, Jamaica. He says, at some point... He realized that the library there didn't have the books he needed for a research project. The closest library with all these books is Georgia Tech. So he writes the chairman of the math department at Georgia Tech and says, my name is Professor Gladwell from the University of Indies. Can I come and use your, your library? The guy says yes. It was the early 1960s, and there weren't any flights between Kingston and Atlanta. So Malcolm's dad begins preparing for the trip. He's going to have to take a boat from Kingston to Miami and then a bus from Miami to Atlanta. And meanwhile... What he doesn't realize is that they go into a panic at Georgia Tech because they have no idea whether he's white or black. As it happens, Malcolm's dad is white and his mom is black. But Georgia Tech, which was still segregated in 1961, has no way of verifying any of this because there's no internet. So while his dad is busy coordinating his very complex trip across the ocean, chaos is unfolding in Atlanta. And the date's getting closer and closer and closer and they're like freaking out... And they can't call him because they don't, my parents don't have a phone at home and there's one phone in the, you know, it's University of West Indies. And finally, like the night before he's about to get on the 
boat for Miami. The, someone from Georgia tracks him down and he says, Professor Gravelin goes, yes. In person? <laughs> or on the phone? On the phone. Says, I have a question for you. He says, what is it? He says, are you black? My dad says, no, I'm not. The guy says, oh, thank God. <laughs> and then, wait, there's a kicker. <laughs> my father, my father, a man of great mischief, takes with him to Georgia a very large photograph of my mother. And they take him out because he's a visiting, whatever, scholar. When he arrives, they take him to dinner. So he's at dinner in Atlanta in 1961. Well, it's like white guys. And he says, oh, would you, would you, would you like to see a picture of my, my wife, my newlywed? Passes around a photo of my mother. It's like he has the same, the same propensity for mischief that you <laughs> have continued. Larger. Larger? larger? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mentioned Malcolm's propensity for mischief because that's something he often brings up when he's pitching an episode of Revisionist History to the production team. Say, something about how high-quality dining hall food is one of the greatest moral quandaries in higher education. Invariably, one of us will say, wait, are you sure you want to do that? He does. And more on that later. Mischievous, by the way, is probably a better word than controversial to describe Malcolm. But the episodes do tend to invite some controversy, as does the name of the show. When you conceptualized it, I remember we came up with the name Revisions History and, and, and you brought it to Panoply and, and everyone was like, wait, isn't that a bad thing? Like everyone was asking it. And you were like, no, I like the idea of, of using what was a bad word. Yeah. But what, why, was, why was that the framing you chose, even if you knew it was going to be only somewhat of, a, of an actual history podcast? Well, the whole, I, want, I mean, first of all, I don't think there needs to be a strong connection between the title and the titles just need to be intriguing. And, but I liked, I liked the, the, I liked the inherent mischief in taking a word with a bad connotation and kind of, and what's the word? Uh, Rehabilitating. Rehabilitating it. Reclaiming, yeah. Reclaiming it. I also like challenging people's preconception that history means something long ago, that in fact, it's just as fun to th talk about historical events that happened two years ago. So that's kind of, that's the sort of joke of it that, you know, remember we came up with the title long before right. we sort of really knew what the show was about. Have you ever searched like revisionist history, just the words on Twitter? Oh yeah. Like it's like some, there's some like Nazi. So it's, it's like, if we're, if we're like actively publishing, maybe we get like half the tweets are about the show and then like 40% are like, <laughs> it's like right wing people saying, Hillary Clinton is a revisionist history historian, and then maybe like ten percent are people using it in the like the, the Marxist version, which was revisionist for people who deviated from yeah. hardline Marxism. Like Trotsky was a revisionist, or uh, whoever was. A, it's just a funny mix when you scroll down that feed. Yeah, I like re I like this idea of rehabilitating words and phrases and giving them. Um, you know, there's no reason why the term revisionist history should be left to the crazies. One of my favorite things about Family Ghosts is that at first it might seem like a show about eccentric characters from the past, but it always ends up being more of a way for people to tell very personal stories about their own lives. Similarly, while revisionist history is nominally a history show, I noticed that by setting it in the past, whether recent or distant, Malcolm can launch critiques on present-day institutions or ideologies by finding their parallel. Case in point our 2017 episode about golf, A Good Walk Spoiled. 
At one point in the episode, we describe how Bob Hope mounts a PR campaign on behalf of California's elite country clubs. And then Malcolm says, In order to win a set of privileges for the very wealthy, in other words, California's country clubs turn to a man who symbolizes the common man. I mean, when does it ever happen that a TV celebrity wins a sweetheart deal for his rich golf buddies by posing as a friend of the common man? If you get my drift. I'll leave it up to you to decipher the rich TV celebrity he was talking about. Have you ever worked, like reverse engineered something where you look at something that's currently bugging you and you're like, well, I don't want to come out directly against this, but if I attack it, you know, if I outflank it by finding its, its corollary in the past. Yeah. I don't know if I do it consciously, but I'm, I think I get interested in themes and then I realize the only interesting way original way to explore them is to go back. Malcolm brings up an upcoming episode from this season that focuses on the contradictions in the life of Sammy Davis Jr. and the infamous moment where Sammy endorses and then awkwardly hugs the incumbent President Nixon at the 1972 Republican National Convention. In this season with Sammy Davis Jr., you know, the, the way that Kanye gets in trouble for backing Trump, you can't do a show on that because, A, it, 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 it seems, I don't know, it seems, though it's important, it seems like there's enorm- it wouldn't make any sense six months from now. Right. And it feels like there's an, an enormous amount of pressure when there's a cultural phenomenon, like Kanye and Trump. It's like immediately everyone wants to publish a long, in-depth take. Mm-hmm. But you really, you can't, you can't have, so, your, your immediate reaction is never going to be the real reaction because these things ripple. So yeah. I guess... I guess everyone will think of Kanye with the Sammy Davis episode. I want them to think about him. And I'm yeah. thinking about, as we're taping this, I, we have not yet completed that episode. So I might stick in a Kanye reference. And I'm not sure. I think that any piece of writing or audio or whatever, any, any creative thing, always works best when the reader or listener you know, makes further connections on their own. Mm-hmm. So you don't spell it all out for them. So incomplete creative work is in many ways more, more, more meaningful and impactful than complete work. Like I've been reading for the Sammy Davis Jr. thing. I have to confess, I've been very late to reading Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm-hmm. I've started to read Ta-Nehisi Coates now and he's obviously totally brilliant. But he's complete he, you know, his arguments are, he didn't leave, there are no, like, holes left to kind of go off on digressions. He's like, he has ticked every box. And that is, it's not something I, you know, that he differs from me. I don't think that's better or worse. I just think it's just different. That's not the way I would approach a, it's part of why he is, he attracts so much uh, controversy because he gives you a complete argument where there's just, there is no doubt about where he's coming down. Whereas I like to waffle, right? I like there to be some ambiguity about what I think sometimes. This may be true in some of our episodes, but I immediately think of that same episode about golf where Malcolm opens by saying, I hate golf. And hopefully by the end of this, you'll hate golf too. That doesn't exactly sound like ambiguous waffling to me. I had so many people like in airports, golfers, come up to me and very sort of cheerfully disagree with me. But they weren't angry at me. They were like, 
they thought it was sort of hilarious. So they understood, they got into the spirit of it. And they were like, you know, I, you're totally outrageously mean to the game of golf. But then they laughed because they, you know, at the end of the day, you can't, when you listen to that episode, you're just like, maybe Malcolm's just screwing around here. Right, which is interesting. Because I, I think what, what that means is that we succeeded in hitting the tone we wanted to hit for that episode. Yeah. Not everyone got the joke, or at least not everyone appreciated it. The National Review mounted a pointed response to the episode called In Defense of Golf, in which they accused Malcolm of, and I'm quoting, plotting nefarious podcasts about the seizure and redistribution of private property, which, as an aside, I unironically and actively wish he would do. Another decidedly unwaffly episode is Food Fight, from season one, where Malcolm makes the case that there are trade-offs to colleges offering bougie amenities. Malcolm sent me to Bowdoin College in Maine and Vassar in upstate New York to interview students on the quality of their food. At Bowdoin, it's phenomenal. At Vassar, it's awful. But Vassar does a much better job of admitting low-income students. Again, Malcolm doesn't pull any punches. The, the immediate thing I thought about when you brought up not fully you know, tying a bow on your argument was Bowdoin, where you come out and say, oh, don't, yeah, yeah. Go to Bowdoin, <laughs> don't go to Bowdoin, don't let your kids go to Bowdoin. There's only one solution. If you're looking at liberal arts colleges, don't go to Bowdoin. Don't let your kids go to Bowdoin. Don't let your friends go to Bowdoin. Don't give money to Bowdoin or to any other school that serves amazing food in its dining hall. Because every time you support a Which school, is like the exact opposite. And the reaction to that one, we did not get any... Until about a, a year later, we got one op-ed in the Bowdoin student newspaper that were like, actually, they kind of have a point. Mm-hmm. But... The immediate reaction was no one was having fun with that. Well, no one from Bowdoin. Right. Lots of other people. Actually, that was that was. But even that one, the that bit at the end, "Don't go to Bowdoin," is. I mean, it's it's an it's a parody of a, right. So we've been talking about like pancakes of like, of like a fire and brimstone preacher. Yeah, and, and, like, and it's self parody. Yeah. You know, it's you know, I love dwelling on trivial things. So we would, you know, you you you're there at Bowdoin and you're interviewing like. People about their, what were those pancakes? The eggplant parmesan <laughs> pancakes. <laughs> Which so we, became like a, hash, a trending hashtag <laughs> on Twitter at the time, I think. Well, have you tried things that like you wouldn't have tried otherwise? Like, what kind of, what kind of meals or dishes? Oh, wow. Um, the other night I had an eggplant parmesan pancake. I, you know, I don't think I could have even told you that was a real thing until I had it. You know, I walked past it, didn't grab one, and I went back, oh, I might as well. And it was phenomenal. I had six, actually. Eggplant Parmesan pancake. I mean, this is completely absurd. This is everything that's wrong with American colleges. You know, we're two minutes from talking about eggplant Parmesan pancakes, and I'm denouncing Bowdoin to the top of my voice. I mean, that's supposed, that's supposed to be, on some level, that's comic. I mean, it's deliberately like... We thought so. Yeah. And then... Bowdoin, no, Bowdoin wasn't going to have... But people outside of... I think lots of people were like... They got the point without being... I wasn't hammering on the head, them on the head. Right, 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 right. And, and yeah, and I will say we gave them material for a student sketch comedy review later that, or that next year. And then, yeah, someone wrote an op-ed where they, they actually looked into it. And they're like, oh, his, the numbers on Pell Grants and stuff are, yeah. you can't argue with that. Yeah. And we could do better. With that, I, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on the practice. I don't know how much much you've done this in work outside of the podcast and it certainly be- becomes more obvious in audio when you play it so an inter- when you do an interview with someone that is somewhat or totally antagonistic or where you're, you're going to end up basically be using their own words against them 
And for whatever reason, even in the third year into the podcast, people still take your calls <laughs> for those interviews. And I'm, I'm just wondering if what you, if you have any thoughts on either, I don't want to say the ethics, because I think people are obviously free to choose to do whatever interview, and yeah. they know we're going to chop it up, and we, they know that we make arguments in our podcast. But how do you approach those? And why is it, do you think, you know, three seasons in, maybe they just don't Google, but people still take those calls and do those interviews? Well, we, well Jacob, I do, we do almost nothing that's hostile. So I don't want to say hostile and... No, no, or antagonistic, yeah. But I know exactly what you're saying, but uh, compared to... At a level of argument, not a yeah. level of... We're never attacking a human being. We're, but 90% yeah. of the people that I'm interviewing for the show, I'm uh, interested in understanding and appreciating what they do. 10%, I am uh, antagonistic. Malcolm says, I'm wrong. He's not as interested in these antagonistic episodes as I think he is. And maybe he's right. Those are just the ones that have stuck with me the most. Because I was implicated in the boating controversy. I was the reporter who exposed the near Michelin star dining hall food. But as much as Malcolm can be mischievous and as much as he courts controversy, he says there's something else he's more interested in when he's looking for an interview. You fall in love with people who understand... So... Podcasts are about tone. You can capture tone and you can't capture tone in print. Right? So the great advantage of podcasts is that emotion and tone are foregrounded. So people who understand the importance of this implicitly or, or explicitly, but usually it's implicitly, are the ones you gravitate towards. So Michael Stokes Paulson in the first episode in Divide and Conquer, I sit down with him and instantly it's obvious he gets it. Michael Stokes Paulson is the central character in episode one of our third season. He's there to play, right? He's like, he's totally secure. Yeah. And you need to be kind of, uh, you have to have a sense of fun and you need to be secure in your ideas and who you are. And he just, I mean, he would have, we could have played for hours on, we could have done any number of things. So what was the reaction to it at the time? thundering silence as far as I know. I mean, I haven't been trolling the internet for it, uh, but I've never seen anything to suggest that anybody is remotely interested in this. Okay. Maybe you can convince them. Wait, am I the first journalist to call you and interview you about this? Yes. I'm trying to remember if anybody did back in 2004 or 2005. No, this, people are inclined to view it as a wacky idea. So, Malcolm, you've got to get people to take it seriously. If you, if, if people... I take it seriously, I don't think this is wacky at all. I read this and I'm thinking, this is dead serious. Two sentences in, you understand, oh, he's here to play. He's right, playing. this is not, a, this is <laughs> not, you are not going to be like, this is not a serious, uh, no, no, no. Yeah. I mean, it is serious, serious, but it's, it's playful. Yeah. He's got, he understood the importance of his game. Uh, he was game, yeah. And the people, now I have this great appreciation for people who are up for it. This delicate question of whether or not someone is game, it comes up in every revisionist history interview. And frankly, every Family Ghost interview as well. Like I said earlier, these are shows that seem like they're about one thing, but actually turn out to be about something else. And when producing both shows, we ask ourselves every day, what are we actually trying to do here? I'll talk more with Malcolm about the answer to that question after the break. 
Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. But first, I want to tell you about another podcast I think you will love and which is also produced by Jacob Smith. Deep Cover, Mobland, is the true story of a high-rolling Chicago lawyer who fixed court cases for the mob back in the 70s and 80s. And he did it for decades, until he decided to betray them and work with the FBI. He wore a wire to expose a black market, where politicians were bought and justice was sold, where, for the right price, even murderers could walk free. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern takes listeners on a wild journey into a world of corruption, murder, and mayhem, the effects of which are still playing out in Chicago courtrooms today. I am totally hooked on this podcast. It is fascinating, and it's a very human portrait of a very twisted reality. You can listen to Deep Cover wherever you get your podcasts. The last thing I talk about with Malcolm is something I've been mulling a lot. What exactly are we making with shows like Revisionist History and Family Ghosts, which fall somewhere in between capital J journalism and storytelling, or in Malcolm's case, storytelling with a healthy dose of opinion thrown in? I've been struggling to find a single straight answer. It's partly because narrative podcasting, outside of a public radio environment, is still a relatively new form. The boundaries are blurry. It seems like in your books and and maybe less so in your, your work in the New Yorker, you will present both sides of an argument, or you won't make an argument as personal. Mm-hmm. And then in the podcast, it's, we're using the same kind of like the tools of journalism, the tools of audio journalism, but you're very clearly writing audio essays. Yeah. In the, in the very like classical sense of an essay, like an attempt to follow an argument or to make, like make a rhetorical argument. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I haven't thought about it consciously. I, I feel like I'm doing something very similar that I do in all of my writing, which is I'm not doing the ta Coates thing of presenting an incredibly coherent, you know, jewel box of an argument, but I am making an argument. I'm making a kind of more provisional one or just sometimes, yeah, like you say, sometimes I'm just kind of exploring something. What it is, is, you know, I started as a newspaper writer. So I have all of that grounding in traditional objective journalism. And then I'm kind of a, I've just kind of drifted slightly away from that. So I have all of the form of traditional journalism, but I'm now want to be free to be a smart aleck when I want to be, or be a, or just have a kind of point of view. Right. So there, that, I think that's what people are responding to is just that kind of the way I've just drifted off the template. It does seem like in the podcast, you're able to, at the very least, make more I statements. Is that? Yeah, that's true. And... But that's, remember, that's the form. That's radio, all of, you know, Mia and Julia, our fearless leaders, have impressed on me that I need to make more I statements. Aside from being our fearless leaders, Mia Lobel and Julia Barton are respectively the senior producer and show editor for Revisionist History. So, oh, so that's something, that, that's something you've come to in, through doing Yo, it. Oh, yeah, Julia, <clears throat> or Mia, both of them actually, kept on, particularly in the first two seasons, Place yourself in this. They would say, yeah. where, you know, in the editorial notes, Julia would say, well, where, you know, where are you? What are you thinking at this time? Or Mia would remind me that what listeners respond to is some personal. Right. So make sure you put that in. Before I go, I ask Malcolm if he thinks there's anything different about season three of Revisionist History. If, as his style evolved over the past few years, the show has changed as well. 
This season is much more about personalities. I felt like season one was very much about ideas, and so is season two. And season this season is really about people. You know, Sammy yeah. Davis, Brian Williams. The uh, show about about Walter. Larry Adler and and um, Whites is is kind of a family ghost story because they both both yeah. of these families have this legend. Yeah, and we do investigate it. Yeah. In the third episode of season three. We investigate a family legend passed down between the respective families of an OSS spy and a virtuoso harmonica player who, improbably, joined forces to raid a Nazi boarding house at the end of the Second World War. It only occurred to me during the interview that this is totally a family ghost story. My ideal, and I never quite have pulled it off, but my idea of a perfect story is a story that is about something incredibly specific and intimate and that makes a much broader point without making a much broader point. And I, that, was, that comes close because it's just at its heart, it's just about John Weitz and Barry Adler at a dinner table laughing at each other's version of this thing that happened to them 30 years ago. Like that's really, that's all it is, right? Mm-hmm. And now we dress it up and we go and all, but I mean, that idea those are my ideal stories. I love those kind of incredibly compact little moments where you can just explore them. It also occurred to me during the course of this interview that producing revisionist history for the last three years has shaped the approach to the storytelling that I'll be bringing to producing the second season of Family Ghosts. The obvious similarity between revisionist history and Family Ghosts is that both deal to some extent with recovering the past. Revisionist history on the broad scale and family ghosts at the personal level. But in both shows, we're aspiring towards something that I think should be in any effective story, that search for detail. There's something to be said for the pursuit of those specific, intimate, and compact moments that Malcolm spoke about, for leaving the broader point unmentioned. Sometimes you can see the truth a little more clearly when you don't look directly at it. Wild Card Wednesday. <laughs> Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. So Wild Card Wednesday. So Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card. Wild Card. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. So Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. So Wild Card Wednesday. Ghost family, the alert listeners among you may recall that the inciting incident of episode three in our first season was a text message I received from my friend Nick Markovich the contents of which indicated that he was hoping I could help him find the missing corpse of his grandfather, which had evidently been stolen. I told you at the time that at this point in my life, I'm well aware that text messages from Nick are generally worth my attention. And for today's installment of Wildcard Wednesday, I want to tell you about another one. The time he texted me to let me know he'd convinced himself that he knew how to find the secret of life. It had come to him in a dream. The dream was... I was living in this, this house that was almost a commune, and it was me and a bunch of other people, and I was the new initiate in this house. 
And the, the leader of this commune was... Nick told the story at a live show I used to host here in Brooklyn called Dingmantics. It was in the back of a bar called Branded Saloon. And as he told the crowd that night, the message of the dream was not at all ambiguous. That's what this was. So the leader of this commune, kind of a cult, kind of a commune, I think we wore robes, but anyway, so I was told at one point by him with much gravitas that I had to journey to a Burger King in Lee's Summit, Missouri to find my destiny. Lee's Summit? Lee's Summit in the house? Really? Obviously, dream stories are a cliche. Nobody likes them because when most people tell them, there's not much to the story. I had this dream where this bizarre thing happened, and then I woke up. But Nick is not most people. And this story doesn't end when he wakes up. I was still feeling this intense urge of, or this calling of destiny. Um, so I booked plane tickets, car rental, and hotel reservation to go to Lee Summit, Missouri, to go to a Burger King. <laughs> and okay, so there, all right, a little back. So Nick gets to Lee's Summit, where he discovers that there are in fact three Burger Kings. The mission, it would seem, is not going to be as simple as he'd hoped. Undaunted, however, he picks one of the three at random and drives there straight from the airport. It's a modern Burger King. It's clean. Uh, it's got everything you would expect. And I see a guy in the corner booth. And the thing that automatically came to my mind is that he's the love child of Albus Dumbledore and Rust Cole from True Detective. I don't know if you guys have seen True Detective. I imagine you've read Harry Potter. This guy had long gray hair, kept in a ponytail, very weathered face, but this guy knew things. He had the thing, the mentor thing. Like, this guy has knowledge and secrets. Like, this is, he's, he's the guy. He's got to be, he's the guy. Plus, he's frantically writing on index cards, which is such a lost fringe Fill in your thing to, I'm like, oh my God, this couldn't have been handed on a platter. This guy is going to set me on the path to righteousness. The guy, who turns out to be a local roofer named Rick, sadly doesn't end up having the keys to Nick's destiny. But Nick discovers that the reason he's sitting in the booth with those index cards is because his daughter's getting married in a few days and Rick has to give a speech and he's feeling completely stumped. So Rick and Nick spend the afternoon going over Rick's notes. As luck would have it, Nick, at the time, was working as a public speaking instructor at the College of Mount St. Vincent in the Bronx. Nick then leaves this Burger King, and on his way to the second one, swings by his old boarding school, which is also in Lee's Summit. And while he's there, he finds a group of current students painting his old dormitory. So he grabs a brush and helps out for a while, swapping stories with the slightly puzzled teenagers and offering whatever bits of wisdom he can from the perspective of a graduate who still does things like taking a couple sick days from work to fly to a Burger King in the Midwest based on a dream he had. Eventually, Nick makes it to the second Burger King, where for the first time since he landed in Kansas, doubt begins to creep in. So I'm sitting there, and I'm starting to get a little worried, and I'm thinking, what if I took three days off of work, and I, I built this up to be this day of reckoning, and this is going to set me on the course for my next however many years I should live on this planet, and then it occurred to me in the past two experiences on, on Burger King number one, I, I maybe had the opportunity to help out this man who was about to give a speech at his daughter's wedding and he was very nervous and he was unsure and hopefully we made a little bit of progress. And then I got to go back to my high school and I got to 
you know, at least paint the dorm, and it looked a lot better because, you know, the walls, you could tell, were falling apart a little bit. So I had this moment of, like, you're here, and you want whoever it is, a person, a worker, a customer, uh, the, the designs of spice nuggets in your barbecue sauce to spell out a message of what you should be doing. But look at what you've done. Look how good you felt just doing little things to help other people. And maybe that was the message that I needed all along. In Nick's mind, there was only one thing left to do. So I took out my wallet and I had about, I had a little over $80 in cash that I'd taken out of the bank for my trip. And I took out the, the 420s and I started hiding them in Burger King number two. <laughs> I, left, I left one on the table. <laughs> I, I hid one in the middle of the napkin rack. The napkins were laying flat. And I just kind of lifted up the whatever, and I slid a 20 in the middle one. And I gently dispersed them. I don't know if I wanted the employees or just people to find them, but I figured somebody would find the 20, and it would make their day. So kind of in the comedy rule of thirds, this would be my third minor gesture of doing something nice. So I hid $20 bills throughout the Burger King. Um, and then I got back in my car, and I said, I don't need or want to go to Burger King number three which I'm sure was a fine restaurant because Burger King is great. But, I, you know, I'm not looking for a, a sign or anything blatant to tell me what I need to do. Um, you can kind of make your own fortune. And hopefully, long term, uh, the, the feeling of going someplace and learning to give back and, and do for others gives you uh, what you needed all along, which is just a sense of helping. As Henry David Thoreau once wrote, our truest life is when we are in dreams awake. I gotta say, being friends with Nick keeps my waking life pretty damned interesting too. Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. This episode featured former producer Jacob Smith, whose work you can hear on the new season of Deep Cover, wherever you get your podcasts, as well as Revisionist History and lots of other great shows from Pushkin Industries. Thanks to he and Malcolm, and also to the one true Burger King, Nick Markovich. Thanks also to Evan Viola, with whom I collaborated on the Wildcard Wednesday theme song. If you want to hear the thrilling backstory of that song, please consider joining the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits get all our episodes ad-free, and they get exclusive bonus content. Their generosity is a big part of what keeps Family Ghosts going. So if you have the means, please consider becoming a member today at patreon.com familyghosts. And if you don't have the means, no worries. Please consider supporting the show for free by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It will take 30 seconds of your life, and it will make a huge difference in the life of family ghosts. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our main theme is by Louis Guerra. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. <laughs>